Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton police continue to collect video evidence and further charges may be pending after violence broke out Sunday at an event at Mohawk College featuring PPC leader Maxime Bernier. As the election reaches its halfway point, the Conservatives are maintaining a slim lead over the Liberals, according to a new Ipsos poll. And a Hamilton-based supportive housing agency called Indwell has been selected as one of the partners that will redevelop the Jamesville social housing complex. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin the day, Hamilton police continue to collect video evidence and further charges may be pending after violence broke out on Sunday at an event at Mohawk College featuring People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier. So if you don't know, about 100 people came out to protest or support the fundraiser. Four people were arrested for breach of the peace. They were later released. Police now are looking at a video that shows an elderly woman and her companion being blocked from entering the venue, being yelled at by masked protesters. Now, if you haven't watched the video, the couple holds their ground, but they're not being allowed by the protesters to pass on through. So the gentleman calmly walks over to a Hamilton police officer who then escorts them into the building. To say the situation was tense may be an understatement. Let's bring in our first guest of today's program, Inspector Dave Hennick, Hamilton Police Service. He joins us now. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having having me on the show. So where does the investigation stand at this point? Well, right now, uh, the investigation has been turned over to our criminal investigative branch here at Division 3. And so uh, we have a detective sergeant, Marco Del Conte. He's leading that investigation with one of his detectives, uh, Detective Constable James Durka. And what we're doing right now is uh, we're in the process of collecting video evidence uh, from Mohawk College. Um, I think, as most people can see, there's been an abundance of new video that has been released in the last 24 hours on social media. We have a social media cream, uh, team as part of our tech crime unit, and they are in the process of... Um, collecting all that video evidence and then we're also speaking to witnesses and we're in the process of furthering that investigation to determine if any of really if any of the activity or conduct of the people who attended the protest rose to the level of uh, criminality so is it uh, hard to say how many potential arrests could be made after watching all these videos yeah, it'd be difficult to say at this point. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't want to guess. What I want to do is take a step back, collect all the evidence, take a moment to look at it, and make sure that uh, we're comparing all the conduct uh, to see if, like I said, if it rises to the level of criminality, and if it does, and reasonable grounds exist, then uh, criminal charges will be laid for uh, for those individuals responsible for that criminal behavior. Members of the public are probably asking themselves, um, you know, should something come about on these videos? How soon can Hamilton police go out and find these people and, and lay charges? Well, we're, we have a team of um, our members working on it actively at this time. So I think with anything, I think it's more important to, to get it right. Uh, we're taking our time. We're collecting the evidence. As you can tell, even from I've had the chance to speak with a couple of the members that were actually at the college on, uh, on, the night, on Sunday night. And uh, the sight lines also change um, your approach to the work. So some officers, when I spoke to them, said, you know, from where I was standing, I could see, I could see part of it. And, and so the video that has been shared uh, pretty widely on social media with the elderly lady that was uh, being stopped from coming in, I know as soon as our members, as soon as that came to their attention, 
they quickly went over to uh, intervene and then escorted her inside the venue. Um, but they originally couldn't see that. And so it's the sort of thing where as the videos come, they start to paint a different picture of what actually took place on that night and allows our members to see, um, I guess, fights right from the beginning. So if there was um, assaults that took place, um, or, for example, in that instance, uh, you know, there's an offense in the criminal code called causing disturbance. Um, so that may be appropriate in that circumstance. So those are the things that we're looking at. We're chatting with uh, Hamilton Police Inspector Dave Hennick here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. we got just a couple more minutes uh, with Dave. Uh, from your perspective on Sunday, how would you describe what went down? Well, I, I, I can tell you I'm, I'm proud of the work of our members. It was a, a difficult night. Um, we worked very, very closely with uh, Mohawk College on the planning for uh, this event. Uh, they provided private security. Um, cover the cost of pay duty officers, and of course, uh, we um, provided members of our public order unit, our action unit, our divisional safety officers, and uh, it, I, I would describe it as volatile. When I spoke to one of the members as early as this morning, she said that's the worst that she's seen it so far uh, this summer for protesting activity. And so I think uh, I'm, I'm proud of the work that the, our members uh, did that night. I think they showed restraint. They demonstrated professionalism. And um, and now is the appropriate time to take a step back to look at the conduct of all those members who uh, or all those people that were involved in the protest. If their conduct um, rises to the level of criminality then, and charges are appropriate, then charges will be laid. Last one for you. We've had uh, the Lock Street vandalism not too long ago, you know, weekly protest outside City Hall, Hamilton Pride violence, this this Maxime Bernier event. Uh, people might be wondering, you know, is, is Hamilton still a safe place to be? W- what's going on in the city? Absolutely. Hamilton is uh, a fantastic city. I've worked in this community for 21 years. Um, I, I love working here. It's a safe city, and um, I, I, I believe, obviously, um, I think other people are concerned about the the recent rise in, in behavior that's concerning to many. And um, But overall, Hamilton is a fantastic community filled with great people, and um, that, that should be the focus of the conversation. Inspector Hennick, appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, sir. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton Police uh, collecting further video evidence and uh, say that more charges may be laid, more arrests may be conducted uh, after violence broke out this past Sunday at an event featuring PPC leader Maxime Bernier at Mohawk College. One of the individuals who was there to take in what was happening outside the college is Kojo Dampney, a program manager at the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, and joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Kojo, how are you? Good, how are you? Not too bad, thanks for joining us today. I understand you were at the protest as well on Sunday. What did you see? Yes, I mean, what I what I saw was uh, a number of residents of Hamilton coming together to uh, show their displeasure towards uh, certain individuals that are engaging in racist and xenophobic and Islamophobic messaging. And that has seeped into politics. And henceforth, uh, Mr. Maxime Bernier showing up and uh, and and residents saying they they don't agree with some of the things he's been saying. Your group preaches inclusion, togetherness. How disturbing was Sunday's incident for you? 
it it was it was very 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 disturbing i think that um uh for for an organization that is that is supposed to ensure that our city is as inclusive as it can be it was very disturbing in terms of the uh the violence that took place and also some of the language uh that 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 was used and also the disappointment that a post secondary uh, institution would uh would hold an event like this and also not even provide resources to have a counter event that was supposed to happen that day and and lastly i would like to mention that i don't think there's there's ever been an instance where a whole college all the entrances have been closed to uh to have an event and that event has caused so much division in the city so it also begs uh, uh to ask why would mohawk college go through all of this pay uh police officers extra money to have an event that is dividing uh our, our city and if if not even the country as well so mohawk college has said that the event was booked even before the election drit writ was dropped, but it had to know that Bernier's appearance would spark a reaction in in the community. Does this put a stain on Mohawk in your mind? Yes, I think so. Uh, uh, We have heard from many Mohawk alum that they sent in uh, 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 letters of displeasure to the university. We've seen uh, lots of of comments being made, and I think as as a site of uh, a site that's supposed to be about learning and and engagement and critical thinking, to have an event like that and push out, or I think the better word would be price out a counter a counter event that was supposed to talk about why uh some of the language mr Benny and his and and his political parties using is is very uh, uh dangerous that that's uh, a huge displeasure so i think mohawk definitely failed uh, uh to uphold uh higher standards of of learning and inclusion Part of, or at least the the main thrust of Bernier's event was a chat about free speech in this country. And I would almost guarantee that the protesters who were at the event in support of Mr. Bernier were just saying that, hey, we're just practicing our free speech. Do you buy that? No, I don't. First of all, they should read what what freedom of expression is, right? In 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 Canada, you can you can say whatever you want, but then there are restrictions of what you can say. So that's the first mis- misguided information. Second of all, when we talk about uh, freedom of speech, I think that uh, that is euphemism for some of the is- Islamophobic and xenophobic messaging that has come out of the party. If you look at their platform, they are, they are, they are suggesting that uh, Canada has a mass immigration problem. Canada takes in about 300 to 350,000 immigrants, of which most are economic immigrants. In the Middle East, countries like Jordan and Lebanon take in 1 million uh, uh, immigrants. So to say that we have a mass immigration problem and then to propose that you're going to decrease the, level, the levels of immigrants coming into, into this country without any proper analysis in terms of public um, 
uh, uh, pu- public inferences and social inferences. I think that's doing a, a displeasure to to all the, the 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 residents and people that are going to be voting. And lastly, in their platform, they've also talked about how they want to change some of the hate incidents and hate speech laws. Already, the threshold to even get someone convicted for a hate crime and hate speech is so high, and they want to reduce that level. So I think uh, uh, some, of the, some of the proposals they have in their platform is very uh, detrimental to lots of, of, of Canadians and people that, that are, living, are living in this country. We're chatting with uh, Coach Odentme, a program manager at the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. We're chatting about Sunday's uh, violent protest outside Mohawk College in advance of uh, an event featuring PPC leader Maxime Bernier. Uh, protesting is one thing. If you want to you know, make a point in a civil manner, uh, you know, you're allowed to do that. For me, when someone puts a mask on and uh, then starts berating others, as shown in this video... Uh, with with the elderly woman and her companion, I mean that's where I draw the line. Yes, I I, I think that no violence and and uh, uh, and folks preventing people from going and confrontation are things that we should refrain from. But also wearing a mask is not illegal uh, uh, in 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 Canada. So just wanted to put that out put that out there. But what I uh, I would like to I would like to say is that. Um, these incidences that we we focus on draws us from the immediate and important discussions that we should be having. I'm not saying that uh, uh, elderly individuals or, or or seniors that have disabilities, whether invisible or invisible, should be should be uh, 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 should be confronted when they are going to any any uh, event. But what I'm saying is that if Mohawk didn't allow that event to happen, that situation wouldn't have, have taken place. So I think we should be focusing on why Hamilton has become a hotbed for alt-right groups, and this continues to happen. And lastly, I think that this issue around hate and, and, and politics and divisive language is something that Hamilton formal institutions haven't done a great job to address. So City, the city hasn't done a great job, especially when we've, we found out that they hired a, a, a neo-Nazi. Um, our police don't have the necessary experience and resources to deal with these, with these issues. And now we've, we are learning that post-secondary uh, educational institutions also don't have the, uh, 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 the resources to deal with this. So then when that happens, residents that feel these effects are left in anger and in rage to deal with these things. And so that's why we have a heightened, center, a heightened uh, atmosphere at these protests, and that leads to uh, 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 contentious situations where people are shouting at each other, somebody brushes somebody, then the next person throws a punch, and then the police come in, and then it becomes a huge... Uh, um, and then people are charged and arrested in the whole bit. Coach, we got to leave. Exactly. Yeah, we got to leave it there. We're fresh out of time. I appreciate your time today and enjoy the rest of the day. You too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know that October 21st is election day, and uh, in about 10 or 15 minutes' time, once we're done with uh, Sean Simpson, we're going to talk about 
um, whether or not you've decided who you're going to vote for. As we know, it's a neck and neck race. It's been neck and neck since day number one. Have you decided who you're going to vote for? And is that the same or different compared to 2015? So we'll open up the phones at about 10, 15 minutes at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. October 21st is, well, I mean, as of yesterday, three weeks away. The Conservatives maintaining a slim lead over the incumbent Liberals, according to the latest Ipsos poll, conducted exclusively for Global News. And i got to say, Ipsos is really hitting home runs on this front because uh, this isn't easy work. <laughs> a lot of number crunching that they got to do. And uh, to do it on a weekly basis is uh, phenomenal. So what does the latest poll show? Well, it shows... 37% of voters surveyed would vote conservative if an election were held tomorrow. And that is a one-point gain since last week. So apparently, according to this latest poll, the conservatives gaining a little more traction as the election campaign wears on. And it's interesting to note that this is just a couple of weeks after the whole blackface scandal erupted. But there is some intriguing news surrounding that. Justin Trudeau's blackface scandal. Because 34% of decided voters would choose the Liberal Party. That's up two points from last week. So despite the scandal, more people, at least compared to last week, are saying, yeah, Justin Trudeau, he's got my vote. The Liberal Party has my vote. NDP's Jagmeet Singh is uh, at 15%. That's unchanged from last week. The Greens have taken a bit of a dive, and this is, I'm not sure surprising is the word, interesting because it was just a few days ago that Green Party leader Elizabeth May unleashed her party's platform. And maybe those who were kind of sitting on the fence, not sure who to vote for, or perhaps they were Green Party supporters, looked at the platform and said, hmm, I don't know if I'm down with this. Green's down 4% compared to the last Ipsos poll conducted last week. They're now sitting at 7%, actually down 4 points, sitting at 7%. So we have conservatives at 37, liberals at 34, a two-horse race or a two-party race, as Daryl Bricker explained in our opening clip. The Tories up one point, liberals up two points, the block up a point, PPC unchanged at two, NDP unchanged at 15. So, can we say that Andrew Scheer is the front runner here? I guess we can, because, you know, the Conservatives have been at the top of the heap for the last number of polls, not only from Ipsos, but other outlets out there as well. And I think we can surmise that the prairies are going to be Tory blue, Quebec is going to be liberal red, it'll come down to B.C., Ontario, and the Maritimes, where, uh, you know, there's question marks there. B.C. going to be Tory blue or NDP orange. Are the Liberals going to get any seats in there? Maritimes, you know, the Liberals dominated Atlantic Canada in 2015. And they pretty much dominated Ontario, especially the GTA and the 905, the 416, the ultra-important area of any federal election. You win that that area, you win the GTA you're probably going to form the next government unless something really goes awry elsewhere. And, uh, yeah, as we know, 
Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba are going to be all Tory blue. Let's go to Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos Canada. Sean, how are you? Great, thank you. So these are interesting uh, results, especially compared to uh, the last time around. And maybe one of the most interesting is the blackface scandal that Justin Trudeau has endured hasn't really knocked him down uh, as much as many had expected, I guess. Yeah, in the uh, immediate aftermath of the uh, of this scandal, the Liberals went down three points. Uh, now they're back up two points, so it's it's pretty well a wash. I think most Canadians are, um, you know, moving on or at least try, trying to move on, even if the media is still holding on to it. Another interesting tidbit is uh, the men versus women aspect of this poll, and uh, it seems to be fairly split as well. Yeah, I think one of the keys to Trudeau's victory in 2015 was a significant advantage among women, also millennials, but 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 women. And uh, we're finding now that the Liberal Party has no advantage among women. Uh, among women, the, the Liberals and the Conservatives are tied nationally, uh, but among men, the Conservatives are ahead by about six points. So it, the, 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 the gap, uh, the advantage is no longer among among women for the Liberals, it's among men for the Tories. And has that uh, has those two uh, men versus women changed over the last number of polls? Well, actually, I think since the SNC Lavalin uh, affair came to light earlier in this year, um, you know, given that uh, uh, it was probably the Liberals' uh, two most prominent women, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Dr. Jane Philpot, that were involved in this issue. Um, since then, uh, the advantage that the Liberals had among women is, has more or less evaporated uh, to what you see today. Among uh, age demographics, Liberals still holds uh, the most of the cards, at least, in the 18 to 34 bracket. Yeah, so, you know, what's interesting is that if only if people 35, age, uh, 35 years of age and up voted, it would be a conservative ma majority government. So the extent to which the conservatives uh, form government or the strength of their government or for form government at all is really up to those under the age of 35. If they show up and vote, you know, the liberals can, can win this thing. Uh, if they don't, the conservatives will win a majority. And if it's somewhere in the middle, then it'll be some flavor of minority government. Yeah, yeah, liberals appear popular amongst uh, those aged 18 to 34. 34% of millennials indicated they would vote liberal. 25% would choose conservative NDP in and around that 25 percentage mark as well. But as you mentioned, the older voters, 55 and older, those who usually go to the ballot box to cast their vote, uh, the conservatives have 42%, the liberals 35%. And among that middle group, the 35-54 that you mentioned, conservatives polling at 42%, 10 more than the liberals. So there's really your election night uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, that's right. And and what we're seeing in the data is that uh, boomers are uh, about twice as likely to say that it's that they're absolutely certain to vote than than millennials. So uh, uh, fewer than half of uh, those between the ages of 18 and 34 say that they're certain to actually go out and vote. So uh, if they don't want a conservative government, uh, then they better get off the couch, uh, pause Netflix and uh, <laughs> and get, get and, and go cast their ballot. <laughs> but are they are they inclined to do that? I mean, are they as motivated as four years ago? Do we know this? 
No, I, I don't think they are. Um, the The voter turnout rate in 2015 went up from about 62% point to 69 percentage points of turnout. And everybody was saying, wow, isn't that, that great for democracy? But it essentially didn't change among people over the age of 35. It just went up 20 points among people between the ages of 18 and 34. They showed up and they elected Justin Trudeau and, and he became prime minister. It can happen again if those people show up and vote. But in our polls every week, we're seeing a lot of apathy among younger people, including a belief that none of the political parties really inspire them. Hmm. Uh, poll also showing that uh, Justin Trudeau's liberal government is, uh, at least its approval rating, is up three points to 43 percent. And that, that might be somewhat surprising as well with the blackface scandal as well. Yeah, but it went down in the aftermath of the news, and now it's it's going back up, sort of in in lockstep with uh, with with the popular vote. I think what happened uh, was a lot of people who maybe were initially thinking they were going to vote the Liberal Party last week sort of said, "Well, maybe I'm I'm going to vote for the Green Party." And now what we're seeing is that those people who said last week they were going to vote for the Green Party, as you said in your in your um, preamble, you know, maybe saw the the policies uh, and thought, "Well." You know, I'm behind them on the environment, but some of the other stuff I can't really get behind. And maybe now they're coming back to um, the liberals. You know, uh, in most ridings across Canada, the Green Party is is not really much of a factor. And so when you've got such a tight horse race between the two leading uh, parties, I think uh, people's join that race and say, well, if it's between A or B, then I, I, I better choose one of them to make my vote count. We have a couple more minutes with Sean Simpson, Vice President Ipsos here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. Uh, most of the polling that Ipsos has done has shown the Conservatives holding the edge uh, with three weeks left to go in the campaign. Can anything, I guess anything can happen to, to sway that. But uh, I mean, the polling is showing that it appears to be Andrew Shear's election to lose. Yeah, at, at, at this point in time, um, I think particularly because uh, the Conservatives will receive that ballot box bonus that we're uh, that we've been talking about uh, with uh, with older people being more likely to show up and, and vote. But the debates are still ahead of us, and um, in that key 905 uh, area, and even southwestern Ontario, um, it, it's pretty close. Um, the, the Liberals obviously have an advantage in Toronto proper, but in in the belt around in the 905, it's very close. And I think the debates are, are going to be an opportunity for people to look at Andrew Scheer, to look at Jagmeet Singh and and, uh, and Elizabeth May, who maybe they don't know quite as well as the as the Prime Minister, and see whether or not they see a viable alternative to the uh, to the existing uh, government. So I'm expecting um, things to change, but the fact that some of the um, the other parties are, are dwindling a little bit and people are spending more time focusing on the Liberals and the Conservatives is not entirely surprising to me. I guess Ontario, and certainly the GTA, the 905-416, I mean, that's where the battleground is essentially going to be won or lost. I'm not sure how many young people are going to be watching those debates, so that might sway some of those older voters to go one way or another. Yeah, and even if they're not watching the debates, there's a ton of coverage, right. you know, uh, in media and social media, and you you kind of start to understand the tone of the uh, of what happened, even if, even if you don't see it. But 
you know, places like, um, you know, Hamilton are going to be key. Hamilton Mountain, of course, an interesting uh, riding. Um, you know, the NDP should still be able to hold a Hamilton Center. But a- as we get outside of the core of Hamilton into places like Burlington and, and uh, down towards Niagara, a lot of those are, are ridings that are, are go liberal sometime and go conservative other times. And I think that's where the Tories are, are going to be looking to, to make some of their gains. Sean, always appreciate the time. Great job on uh, assembling these numbers once again. That's been my pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Hamilton-based supportive housing agency called Indwell uh, has been selected as one of the partners that will redevelop the Jamesville Social Housing Complex. Uh, the new project will include a 46-unit rent geared to income, income apartment building as well as 45 units of affordable housing. Here to chat about what this all means is Tom Hunter. And Tom is the CEO at City Housing Hamilton and joins us in studio. Thanks for coming in today. Good morning, Rick. So this is huge. Very exciting. Very exciting for City Housing Hamilton and very exciting for the city and the North End in particular. So what does this mean? We have a a housing complex that is basically going to be leveled and a new facility, new housing is going to be constructed. Yeah, that's right, Rick. So currently on a five-acre, rough, just over five-acre site, we have 91 townhouses. So we will be leveling, demolishing the townhouses and then on that site, we will be replacing it with a range of social housing and private market units. There will be a, a range of uh, um, different affordability, okay. right, it, w- with across those units. And so that will be mixed income. There will be units of varying sizes, one, two, three bedroom units as well. We're going to enhance the accessibility within the, the the units and for city housing hamilton's building in particular we're looking at a high performance building so low utility costs low on greenhouse gas emissions hmm. you know very good for sustainability and then also i think very importantly is we are looking at the development and how it best integrates with the north end so that we do have you know different as i mentioned different types of housing a different look to the to the buildings really integrated with into the community and the best as we can you know how does the community become more involved with on the property and as well the property more engaged with the city right so this facility this complex whatever you want to call it is not going to be just one standalone building that's going to stick out like a sore thumb not at all not at all so there is the building for city housing hamilton and then indwell with the partnership with the um Jamesville Redevelopment Corporation will be looking at the development of the balance of the site with, as I mentioned, that range from affordable housing to market units. Mm. So there's 91 units now. Uh, We've just mentioned that they're going to be demolished. Where are the people who have been occupying these uh, buildings going to be? Right. So, uh, Rick, those people have, at this point, all been relocated. Okay. So there's nobody living on that property at the present time. We have you know, we have uh, security coverage, 24-7 security coverage, and we have relocated those individuals to other City Housing Hamilton properties throughout the city. And I would say that uh, that would have been primarily on the mountain or in the east end. So once this, maybe the first question is, when is all this going to be ready for occupation? <laughs> Right. That's, so that's <laughs> a good let's question. Let's start with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Years, years from now. So, yeah, I, I can't answer that with certainty, right? Okay. So we're just working with the developer right now around the development, uh, sorry, the demolition schedule, and then subsequently, right. you know, the the, uh, the building schedule. Yeah, because there's a lot to do. There is. So the people that 
were living there, do they get first dibs? Yes, that's that's refu- uh, referred to as the first right of refusal. Okay. So we will, as the development gets closer to completion, or particularly our building, it, it would be with our building, we would re, uh, reapproach those individuals to say, you know, your interest in coming back mm-hmm. to to the to uh, Jamesville. So who would be able to live there, so to speak? So it, it would vary on the building, but mm-hmm. for City Housing Hamilton specifically, it is rent geared to income. So people would be, um, well, those, if if there were individuals who did not want to come back and there was still space available, then we would look to the wait list and based on the unit that was available and who was at the top of the wait list, then they would have access to right. those units. So describe the wait list, because we've heard that there's a, a wait list of 7,000 households for social housing in Hamilton. So how break that down for us. What does that mean? Right. I think, I think it's important to realize that there's there is the wait list for social housing, which is yep. your rent geared to income, and you would have, you know, that there's the number over 6,000 individuals and families are on that wait list. But there's also, um, you know, uh, the affordable market units throughout the city that are, are once again offered by a spectrum of providers, and there's wait lists for those. So even at City Housing Hamilton for our affordable market units, depending where they are in the city, there's a year wait list for those. So, Mm. you know, when people talk about the affordable housing crisis, it's real because it is more than just the wait list. It's about what's happening with affordable market units as well. So what makes a house or or an apartment unit an affordable housing unit? Right. So it, when you look at that definition of, of affordable, the, the, uh, what, the, what the city through their policy refers to as affordable housing is anything that is uh, under 125% of the average market rent okay. or minimum market, median market rent. So if you were looking at a unit uh, for $1,000 uh, in an area that's the average in that area, then the median then the 125% would be $1,250 for an affordable unit. I see. Uh, Councillor Jason Farr calls this an unprecedented opportunity for social housing in the city of Hamilton. Those are pretty strong words. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what's, you know, as I said, exciting, uh, not only about the, the, uh, the spectrum of housing that we we're providing, but it, it, it is the partnership that, that is being formed with City Housing Hamilton in Dwell. Mm-hmm and uh, the James Will Redevelopment Corporation. That's four different developers within that corporation. And so if we are going to be successful uh, in the city of Hamilton, in any city really looking at enhancing affordable housing, addressing this crisis, it needs to be done in partnership. It's a real challenge for any one organization to go it alone. So in this instance, you know, we're, we're taking this... Um, you know, this area of Jamesville, we're moving towards, you know, a medium density, uh, you know, uh, build or property. And once again, you know, a spectrum of housing. So it really, it meets the individual organization needs, but I also think for, for the city. Tom Hunter is joining us in studio. He is the CEO at City Housing Hamilton uh, here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. And we're talking about a Hamilton-based supportive housing agency called Indwell that's been selected as one of the partners that will redevelop the Jamesville social housing complex. Another quote we heard from Chad Collins uh, off the top of this segment. He describes this project as the poster child for sustainable development as it will incorporate different demographics and incomes. Um can you use this model elsewhere in the city? 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And an example for us is in the East End, we're working with Roxborough Park. Uh, that So that's, once again, a d- developers are there working with City Housing Hamilton. In that instance, we're looking at an 11-acre site hmm. and a building for City Housing Hamilton, which has the uh, social housing and then the balance of the development, a range of affordability. So wow. it, it, it can be replicated. It's not only in Hamilton, it is happening in other cities, but it is, it's the way, I think the best way to really move forward. You know, another example that we're looking at is Riverdale in the East End. And that, you know, that involves not only a partnership with City Housing Hamilton, but potentially the school boards and also other city departments for recreation. So it, you know, right now, we're looking at various ways that we can best redevelop, develop the uh, City Housing mm-hmm. Hamilton portfolio. A lot of balls in the air here. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. It sure is. The Roxborough uh, project, that's more than double the size of this project. Right. In terms of land, right? It, it, it is. It is. And uh, uh, they're still, you know, the, the, the looking at the unit counts, I really I can't specify. Uh, address that specifically because mm-hmm. you know the Roxborough's further ahead we don't know exactly where we'll land with Jamesville right. but it is I think what what we are overall what we're looking at is as I mentioned earlier the kind of this increase in density and then really helping to kind of reform what the community can can look like and be is this kind of project a game changer in the city for those who rely on social housing and affordable housing? I think it's it's part of it. Okay. It's part of it. The development is one element of it. I think we have to work uh, at City Housing Hamilton just as hard at how we maintain the current units that we have and how do we optimize, you know, the funding, incoming grants or financing for even the the maintaining of our current units because you know we can't forget that the redevelopment which and development which what I'm speaking of today may address over the next several years 450 to 500 units right. but we have another 6500 units that we have to work at ensuring they're there for you know citizens to rent in the, across the city someone driving around or listening to this uh, at home or at the workplace might be thinking why don't we just build a bunch of homes and make them affordable housing Easier said than done, right? <laughs> That's right. It, it absolutely is. And so, and if you look back in kind of o- over time and, and what was built previously, you know, within our portfolios, we have single homes, we have semi-detached homes, these townhouses. You have to look at what is sustainable in the future moving forward. You have to look at what's happening with climate change, right? So how are we going to best address that in the housing as we move forward into to the future? So there's a, there's a lot of dynamics to that. Uh, you have a number of partners involved in this project too. So it's not just the city or, and it's not just just end well. It, there, there's a number of factors yes. uh, helping out here. That's right. And that does, I guess, if you were just going it alone, it could be easier. Uh, financially, perhaps not. Right, but right. once you once you are working with partners, there there's complexities. I, I can certainly speak with uh, on, on both of our, the developments that we're looking at at Roxborough and with, uh, you know, Jamesville. We have developers who are, and, you know, when you talk about the like Indwell specifically, I mean, there's an organization that is committed to afford, you know, to affordability. Mm-hmm. They're about wellness and, the, you know, they're about supports for people I- I in the community and how to do that. So it's also with the partners that you work with and you really need to have that similar vision uh, of, of where you want to uh, and what you want to achieve. Obviously, affordable housing, you know, we're in crisis mode. Are the opportunities, do the opportunities outweigh the challenges ahead? So, you know, I, I, th- there's there's both. And, you know, I spoke to the challenges around maintaining our unit of capital uh, project deficits that we have at City Housing Hamilton. 
So there's addressing those day-to-day operations. So those are the challenges. You know, the opportunities through the national housing strategy, that, you know, that helps to support the, the, the development work that, that we're looking at, not only these partnerships, but also we're, we're also looking at, uh, you know, through City Housing Hill on its own, developing other sites. So, uh, you know, I I would say that the, the challenges are significant, but we have to remain optimistic that, you know, what we're, we're doing around the redevelopment, you know, has to have kind of a positive driving force as well mm-hmm. in on affordable housing. Uh, not too long ago, uh, Prime Minister, Liberal Leader Justin Trudeau unveiled the National Housing Strategy has that helped, or are those wheels kind of slowly turning, and we're getting a trickle down effect? So, so I think they're they are slowly turning. But an example of that support is 500 McNabb, which is also in the north end. So that's a building, uh, a ta- an apartment, 17 floor apartment building that's owned by City Housing Hamilton, and we received uh, grant and financing from CMHCs through the National Housing Strategy to do a tower renewal, deep energy retrofit tower renewal. Hmm. So in that instance, you know, this is this is there's very very few of this type of uh, deep um, environmental retrofits across the country so that that national housing strategy has supported that work so it's it's happening um, I guess we would like it to be occurring more rapidly but there that that's a very clear indication of where that funding from the federal government has helped uh, the development of our uh, of our portfolio yeah, building and, and that would be funding that you would not normally have absolutely right? not that's right um, is Hamilton looking to other cities in terms of best practices or other cities looking at Hamilton say, wow, this works, we want to replicate that? It has to, you know, you have to, right? So the tower renewal, as I spoke to, that's a best practice. We not only looked at, at what was happening around the, the tower renewal passive house, it's called high performance, not only within North, North America, but the Europeans are more advanced around that high performance for your building. So that's where you look to that that type of leadership. When you actually get to, to building these, uh, you know, uh, buildings, you know, who is it who has that expertise in well is 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 a company that has been doing the uh, the high performance build as well so you do have to look at those best performances as well i think councillor far also referred around uh, what was happening with the work in toronto around mm-hmm. their region park, park right yeah. so there um, i think you know with region park there were some real successes there were some things that may not have you know gone as well as they would like so you can learn from what's happening across different communities so yes yeah, staying very you know kind of uh, attentive to what's happening outside of hamilton uh, in terms of maintaining these properties that's certainly a big challenge as well. Are there any ideas to do something different in the future? So I think first of all, you know, around the maintenance part, I, I do want to speak to how supportive our council, the city, has been. You know, they have provided us one million uh, over the next ten years through what we refer to as the poverty reduction fund to mm-hmm. help to help uh, with uh, the renovation of our units to make sure that to, to turn more over more rapidly. They've also have supported two million over the next five years for affordable housing redevelopment. So there there are some inroads being re- made around the maintenance of the units, but I think there needs and and even with the uh, with CMHC, the National Housing Strategy, we're in negotiations with them right now around potential grant and funding for the uh, for the reno- uh, renovation of many of our units. Mm-hmm. In fact, across our entire portfolio. Yeah. So I think too that could be very significant. You know, verging on game yeah, game changer as well for us. So it, it's happening both in on the on the day to day operational side, maintaining units, but also looking at what's happening further on development and sustaining in the future. And how many units total are there in Hamilton right now? So City Housing Hamilton. 
Hamilton, we have uh, just over 5,500 social housing units. That's roughly half. Mm -hmm. So there's roughly around 12,000 social housing units in the city. And then there's a a large number of of, uh, low affordable market units, medium affordable market units. That, I don't know that specific number. So there's always something to do. (laughs) Always something to do. No shortage. And as I said, it's amping up. Yeah. uh, we don't have a timeline in terms of completion of this Jamesville project. Do we have a timeline in terms of when shovels will be in the ground for the the commencement of the building? You know, optimistically, if the demolu- demolition at Jamesville would be done within one to one and a half years, mm-hmm. one year, then we could look at shovels in the ground within okay. that time frame. Exciting times. Wow. Uh, we'll certainly be at the ribbon cutting. Uh, congratulations great, great. on you. this plan. Uh, it sounds uh, very exciting. If something, if somebody uh, listening uh, wants more information on how they can get involved, either through volunteering or applying to be on social housing, where should they go? So if it's um, if it's applying for the, the, the social housing, that's through the, the uh, access to housing. That that waitlist is managed by the city, so okay. that's how. And then in in our uh, media release, which was recently issued, there's a contact there for people more information about specifically the Jamesville development. Great stuff. Tom, appreciate the time as always. Great, Rick. Thanks so much. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.